Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Elizabeth Colbert, who's a visiting fellow at Williams College, very well known for writing in The New Yorker, a Pulitzer Prize winner for her book called The Sixth Extinction. And we're here today to discuss a fascinating and frightening vision in her new book, Under a White Sky. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Your, uh, your book, I, I, I just loved the Kafka epigraph, and I'll leave that as a mystery. And yeah, I love you gotta the way read, in which- Gotta read the book, gotta uh, read the that's book. That's it, yeah. but, but Kafka tells, how I say, gives us a preview of where we're going. And you tell a story which I think all economists really need to hear. Uh, and the way I think it was paraphrased to me was you worry about how to control the system that controls the system that controls the environment. And I, uh, I, I found your perspective challenging daunting and refreshing and we'll how do i say we'll, we'll get into the uh, okay. the yin and yang of optimism pessimism and hope and despair i'm sure but uh, but let's start with where you were inspired to write this book i know you've been writing on environmental things for a long time i read the new yorker and the sixth extinction but what what triggered the inspiration for this particular one well, you know, um, after I wrote The Sixth Extinction, um, I, I sort of felt like I had written myself into a corner a bit because, you know, that's such a big story, the idea or fact, depending on, yeah, that we're precipitating human, human, human activity is causing a, a sixth mass extinction. So, you know, an event not since the death of the dinosaurs have we seen such high extinction rates as we have today. That's a pretty humongous story. And I was thinking, well, where, you know, where do we go from here? And I started to um, think about, well, how, how are we going to respond? I mean, we're losing, you know, all these species, we're, we're losing whole ecosystems. You know, people are very ingenious. They're very creative. They don't just sort of sit there usually and, and, and watch disaster, they do try to uh, intervene. And I heard about this project, which is at the center of the book, but was really the first thing that I reported, which was nicknamed the Super Coral Project. And it was scientists in Hawaii and Australia who were two, two women, led by two women, very dynamic women, um, who were had sort of reached the conclusion, well, you know, reefs are doing very badly. They don't like warm water. We know that uh, oceans are warming. They're going to continue to warm. There's really not very few tools in our arsenal, though we can talk about some of those later, to change that trajectory. 
um, in the short to medium term. So their thought was, if we want reefs in the future, if we want our grandchildren to have reefs, we want to be able to reseed even the reefs of the future, we're going to need to intervene again. So we've intervened, you know, to create climate change. You know, that was an unwitting intervention in the natural world. Uh, we, we, if we want reefs, we're going to have to consciously manipulate them. And they were looking at various forms of hybridization. Uh, they were looking at all sorts of, 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 of manipulations of the reef to try to protect at least part of it um, in Hawaii and on the Great Barrier Reef. And this way of thinking that we've, you know, changed the world so fundamentally that now we have to go in and manipulate living creatures to, uh, you know, enable them to survive our own uh, impacts on the natural world. That struck me as, well, that I sort of then started to see this pattern everywhere. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to reach for the next intervention. You know, one intervention is going to be laid on top of another because that's that's sort of what you know 21st century humans do, and that's really what uh, inspired the book. So each chapter really looks at a way in which we have, you know, consciously or unconsciously manipulated the natural world, and now don't like the consequences of that, and so are trying to come up with a new form of manipula manipulation. So the manipulation takes. Uh, addresses the adverse side effects of the previous manipulation. Yes, there's a there's a Rube Goldberg-esque quality to it, uh, <laughs> absolutely, and I, I hope that comes through in the book. I think it does. It, it kind of uh, asks the question, does the fool see how foolish he or she is in There's this a lot context? of human folly in there, yeah. 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 Well, I know the book, I remember seeing three sections and reading uh, Down by the River. I always think of the old Neil Young song, but uh, uh, you, and you played a little Chicago music and you played a little New Orleans music there. Yeah. Yep. And then and then the uh, Into the Wild, which included this uh, Hawaiian study and some thoughts about the Great Barrier Reef and other episodes. And then Up in the Air. And I think the title of your book came from something about up in the air, as I recall. Yeah, so the title is drawn from one of the last chapters um, where uh, sort of the grandest, you know, intervention to solve an intervention, um, which is this notion of, of solar geoengineering. And what that usually refers to is this idea that we will you know, we've loaded the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. Everyone knows that we're warming the planet. Um, and one way that has been theorized that you could sort of counteract this, the only way that has been theorized is that you could counteract it as opposed to, you know, everything else that we're talking about, reducing emissions, cutting emissions to zero, that doesn't actually, uh, you know, that stops more warming, um, but it doesn't you know, counteract the warming that we've already uh, caused. Um, and the only way that you could do that, uh, that anyone's come up with, is by pumping a lot of reflective material into the stratosphere, which is what volcanoes do. They pump a lot of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere that sort of sticks together, forms these um, little droplets, aerosol droplets that reflect a lot of sunlight back to space. You get these uh, beautiful sunsets after a Volcan major volcanic eruption and you get 
uh, a temporary global cooling about a year, let's say, until this reflective material falls out of the stratosphere. So there's this theory, it's still a theory, but it's a pretty robust theory that you could, uh, humans could do that. You could imitate volcanoes, you could spray stuff into the stratosphere, it would sort of drift around, create this haze. Uh, you'd have to keep replenishing it, but you would, you would be reflecting a lot of sunlight and you could actually have a cooling effect uh, if you pumped enough up there. Um, and that would have a lot of you know, potential side effects, uh, one of which is that it would change the appearance of the sky. The sky would actually change you know, tint and um, it would become whiter. It might not, it would probably become completely white. Uh, that's a little bit of poetic license, but it would become whiter, whitish. Uh, so that's how I got the title, Under a White Sky. Uh, well, the uh, experience, the chapter, I guess because of my own life experience, the chapters, or one of the chapters that really moved me was the one about New Orleans. I used to work in jazz and blues music. I used to do as a guest on a radio show on WWOZ periodically. Uh, and I was in a team that managed the New Orleans artist, Dr. John. And when I was down there, I found, particularly right after Katrina, a tremendous amount of stress. It's, it's almost like it, uh, something that haunts me about the prospects of the future. And I remember the uh, night, one night, I guess I was in Berkeley, California, when I listened to Anna DeVere Smith do her solo play about health care called Let, Let Me Down Easy. It's named after a something that James Cohn wrote at Union Theological Seminary. But the let, let Me Down Easy skit was about a woman who was a doctor who went over to the places that were threatened by Katrina. And as an educated upper-class person had a complete change of self-confidence about our society because of the fear of those who were her patients when the flooding started. And it was evidence, as we often see, that infrastructure and things are, which uh, you might call, better created, more fortified, more defended in more affluent areas. But, but it was such an unsettling thing and then to read your chapter, it's just like all these echoes came back of the dread that I experienced, which was in a distance. I didn't see an acute flooding or anything, but I talked to a lot of, I talked to a lot of musicians who were moving out of New Orleans out of the fear that they had. But but tell us what, what a little bit about your experience in in understanding New Orleans and the challenge it faces and. Well, I, I also visited New Orleans, and not, not for this book, but for a, a story that is maybe at the root of the chapter in the book, um, right after Katrina. And it was a very, um, it was certainly uh, extremely sobering. You know, the X's on the buildings where bodies had been found, the bathtub ring around the entire city, the, you know, absolute devastation when that wall of water swept through. Uh, various neighborhoods uh, when the flood walls and the levees failed. And I think, you know, it 
brought to top of mind to people in New Orleans what they have always known, really, which was that the city is in a very, very uh, difficult, you know, geologically, it's in a geologically tenuous position. And the story of New Orleans, you know, to go way back uh, 300 years now to 1718, when the city was founded, um, you know, the French came in, they decided to park themselves basically at the, you know, where the, not too far from where the Mississippi hits the Gulf. And it's a strategically very important spot. Obviously it's been called, you know, the inevitable city. It's also been called, uh, you know, the accidental city. I mean, it's, it just, that's where they decided to settle and they very immediately got flooded out. They, they, you know, were just in this crazy place where the river, Mississippi River in those days flooded every year, basically. And that was crucial. What the French didn't understand was that that was crucial. It's absolutely crucial that the river flooded. That's what created the Delta. And that's what creates new land and keeps the land, you know, that's above sea level from just sinking into the sea because the, when the river floods, it deposits silt across the landscape. That is the process of creating a Delta. So they settled in the Delta and immediately decided that the river shouldn't flood anymore. And they set about building this levee system that we now have this just extraordinary, you know, hundreds of miles worth of levees and flood walls. We now levee up the Missouri River. So we have really, on some level, very successfully or pretty successfully, the Mississippi you know, hasn't really had a major flood. The, the Katrina floods were really water coming in from the Gulf. Um, we haven't had a, a Mississippi flood that really flooded, uh, you know, a major Mississippi flood since the 1920s, the great flood of 1927. So we, on some level, we've been extremely successful at controlling the Mississippi. The problem is that in controlling the Mississippi, we have sort of faded New Orleans to sink, just keep sinking. It's one of the fastest sinking places on earth. It's below sea level. Much of the city is significantly below sea level. So that's, you know, on some level, obviously a very dangerous situation. And people, you know, and when you build the levees, the levees are also sinking. So you have a situation where you've created a problem that has to keep being solved by building the levees higher and higher. Uh, and that creates and the risk just keeps growing, right? The further you're living below sea level, the greater, the higher those levees are, the greater the risk of catastrophic failure. And so now what is being planned is um, a series of major interventions, again, in this system of control where they're going to, uh, in, in Southern Louisiana, they're going to basically punch holes in the levees. And when the Mississippi is running high and there's a lot of silt in the river, uh, they're going to let the river out of these gates and into these sort of shallow bays, what are now these shallow bays, and create land south of New Orleans. And the idea is, you know, hopefully this land will help protect uh, New Orleans from these storms that come in over the Gulf, uh, that you need that buffer, that land buffer, which has been sinking away, you know, for the last 300 years. Um, so that's a form of, you know, sort of controlled flooding to counteract the effects of flood control. Um, 
And those projects are, you know, almost certainly going to happen. Billions of dollars will be spent. A lot of that money is going to come actually from the settlement with BP, uh, from the BP oil spill. Um, but the long-term, you know, long-term fate of New Orleans, where you have a city that's sinking and sea levels that are rising, is is very tenuous. I think, uh, you know, I don't know what New Orleans will look like. Uh, or if it will be there, to be perfectly frank, in a hundred years. And reading as the uh, carbon emissions continue and temperatures rise and the ice shelves in Antarctica and in the Arctic are melting, uh, the pressures will continue to impinge upon that. Yeah, no, look, there are certain sea level rise scenarios that um, I think pretty much doom New Orleans or or at least consign it to being a a city that's you know behind such elaborate uh, and expensive uh, defenses that people will eventually decide we, we just can't do this anymore and you know I, I think that I mean New Orleans is a great is a, is a wonderful city it's truly one of the great American cities um, and it's it's tragic, obviously. And there are people, I should say, also who are thinking about reimagining the city, just really completely trying to reimagine a city with a much sort of shorter delta. And this gets a little bit technical, but those discussions are really, really, really hard because they do mean abandoning parts of southern Louisiana and parts of the city even, and people you know, resist that. So you have these for political forces and geological forces that are often at odds. Taking that notion, resistance, uh, I recently made a, a conversation on this channel with Michael Mann about the forms of which you might call information combat or disinformation or le legislative obstacles, whether it's fundraisers or whether it's frightening people in West Virginia that when the Detroit auto industry declined, nobody helped them with the transmission. Don't let them fool you. And all of these different things are used to impede what you might call the scale and the velocity of transformation. What uh, also people like uh, this, the Hungarian philosopher, Irvin Laszlo, talk about habits and behaviors and psychological resistance, the fear of having a house that's too far out in the suburbs and you're commuting an hour a day. If the transportation system is going to change, the value of your house might go down. But, but all of these, how do I say, financial resistances do not seem to be being reconciled with the tremendous threat that we all face. It, how, how can we bring what you might call all those dimensions on the table? Because from reading your book, it's clear that all this other stuff is small potatoes compared to the scale of the challenge on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, I do think I, 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 I think, you know, Michael Mann makes really important points. Um, and, he, you know, he's absolutely right that there's all sorts of um, organized, you know, attempts at, at, at disinformation to prevent action. But 
unfortunately, I think there's also, I think it's a lot of those campaigns work because there's a sort of, you know, status quo bias in our political system that um, is true really across the board. And you could argue that our whole political system is just incapable. <laughs> I guess we're going to find out, you know, stay tuned. Is it capable or not? We'll, we're, we're, we, we, so far, we have not been capable of um, overcoming, the, you know, of dealing with a challenge, an unprecedented challenge. Really, climate change is unprecedented. It's a global uh, problem, a huge inertia in the system. It's not your classic um, pollution problem, which, you know, can be uh, solved or at least ameliorated relatively quickly if you stop putting, you know, certain chemicals into the atmosphere, for example, smog, you know, dissipates fairly quickly, let's say. So we might look at our success, you know, in clearing the air of smog and say, well, you know, when we put our minds to it, when we put catalytic converters on, you know, amazing things happen. That's just not true in the case of climate change. There's just huge inertia in the system. You start melting the Greenland ice sheet, for example, you set in motion feedback loops that you can no longer control. And so the question of whether our, you know, political system, which is based on everyone, you know, voting their own self-interest, let's say, uh, and this, you know, sort of idea that we've always had that, that the collective, you know, consciousness will get us to the right answer uh, eventually, you know, um, that idea, that wonderful Churchill quote, isn't it, Churchill, like Americans will always, you know, do the right thing after they've exhausted exhausted all other yeah, options. Yeah. That's sort of this, what we feel about our political system. We will eventually do the right thing after we've exhausted all other options. The problem with climate change or a problem with climate change is at that point, it may well be too late. I don't want to say, you know, too late to do anything, but it will be too late to avoid certain, um, you know, what are called tipping points or, you know, just just a lot of damage that's already baked into the system. For example, let's just take the demise of the Great Barrier Reef, which I think we could all agree would be, you know, a sort of tragedy on a, you know, planetary level. And um, that question is, I believe, truly an open question right now, um, whether our politics our political system for various reasons, but, you know, the baked in status quo bias, which biases us towards the fossil fuel industry, which still is much, much, much more powerful and well financed than any, you know, renewable energy uh, industry and people's individual, uh, you know, loss aversion and resistance to change. Um, you know, those combined forces are extremely strong. They are why I believe we are where we are today, which is, you know, 50 years into the first reports on climate change, just sitting here having not just done nothing, quite the opposite, having, you know, built up our fossil fuel infrastructure, both in the U.S. and globally, uh, at the exact moment when we knew that was exactly, you know, the wrong thing to do. Yeah, well, well, the uh, there's a old critique of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations by a man who was called the Earl of Lauderdale, 
It's called the Lauderdale Paradox. And he said, in essence, to Adam Smith, how is it that you can talk about the value of things as being consistent with the price of things? If I turned off the water or the oxygen, you would die. So there are things that have value that aren't priced. And there was all kinds of fights. John Baptiste Say, famous for Say's Law, fought and said, essentially, it is all about exchange value. But I guess if, if I look back on that, and uh, a man named Robert McChesney and John Bellamy Foster wrote a beautiful paper about this years ago. Uh, when you look into that window, you see these folks not recognizing the challenge because the scale of the population and resource utilization in relation to that planetary environment was not at risk. But as we've gone on, industrial development, growth of populations, development in the emerging world, we're now at that, that place where those things which have not been priced have very precious value for the future of humankind. And it's not part of our habit structure of relying on the market to help things evolve or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I really, I really think um, that we, if you, if you consider our situation, you know, as I say, to really be unprecedented, you know, in earth history, an organism that finds itself capable of, you know, you could, obviously, we, we've sort of been aware of this since, you know, we invented atom bombs, we realized we are, we are really capable of destroying the planet. And, you know, that's sort of incommensurate with the usual, you know, processes of evolution that, you know, brought us here after, you know, three and a half billion years or so. So we, we stand on, we are just, you know, sailing and very fast. We're not like putting on the brakes. We're just like full speed ahead into uncharted territory. And um, where that leads us, you know, I can only give you the, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a climate scientist, obviously, but I, I, you know, have read enough now and talked to enough climate scientists so I can give you a, you know, very robust, uh, you know, geophysical prediction about where we're heading, you know, where the temperature of the earth is heading and what we can expect uh, the various impacts to be of climate change. But I cannot give you, um, you know, the human dimension is the most unpredictable of it. What, what do we do? And that is really, um, you know, what one of the what I the sort of the motive for under white sky is okay what what do we do what are we how are we going to react and the the ways that we are going to react are not necessarily going to be you know they're not necessarily going to be good but but we've sort of backed ourselves in, into a corner a very 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 big corner here yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier the Great Barrier Reef, which is a place I've been, I have sailed in earlier in my life. And my friend Naomi Kleins took her son there to make sure he would see it. Uh, and she made a, a special about that. But I remember either reading or listening to you uh, in preparation for this. The Great Barrier Reef 
is not a little amusement park. It's something on the scale of the size of Italy. Is that yeah. in terms of geographic footprint? Yeah, the Great Barrier Reef, um, I mean, if you've been there, you know, you know how huge it is. It's not one reef. You know, people think, oh, Great Barrier Reef, it's a reef. It's, it's a system of reefs, you know, thousands of, of individual reefs, some of them pretty small, some of them pretty big. Um, that you know stretches down the entire east coast or most of the east coast of Australia, um, and it's you know been many 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 thousands of years in the making, obviously, um, and it's an amazing it, you know if you've been there and you you know this it's it's truly uh, when people ask me you know what's the most memorable thing you've done i would say being on the great barrier reef is one of the most memorable experiences of my life it is uh you know most of us live in well first of all we live in temperate zones where biodiversity is you know limited to begin with where i live here in massachusetts you know this land was glaciated until you know twelve thousand years ago or so so everything that is here is something that's recolonized this land after 12,000 years. So, you know, it's a pretty low level of biodiversity. And then most of us live in cities where obviously we've, you know, suburbs where we've, you know, cut down in whatever biodiversity there is. But to get a sense of the richness of planet Earth is you, you there's no better place to go than the Great Barrier Reef still today, even as the reef is very, very seriously being damaged. I mean, something like, the reef has lost something like half of its coral cover in the last 30 years. So that's devastating. Yeah. Yeah. I was there in about uh, 2001 and uh, it was already underway. I saw both there and around the Philippines and coasts of Indonesia when I was sailing some very marked deterioration in the reefs. And uh... Yeah, there was a big global uh, bleaching event, I think, in 19... 19- I think it's in 1998, and there have been several since then. And these are these times when the water temperatures rise. Um, and the corals, which depend on this symbiotic relationship with these little plants that they have living inside them who provide a lot of their nutrition, they, they sort of expel these, their symbionts. And they, that's coral bleaching. They turn white because it's really these plants that are giving the corals their color and they starve to death and that keeps happening and that repeated stress is just you know more than more than they can take and that's why we're seeing you know reefs not recovering mm-hmm. i think the uh across the spectrum of things that you cover in this book i, I remember there was a uh chapter about Chicago, which is where my father came from, and about the, the water and the, yeah, it, and, and one of the most hideous ironies is the Flint water crisis, because Flint, Michigan is a, what you might call a bicycle ride with a pail down to Lake Huron, where if you went 100 yards offshore, you could put your pail in the water and get all the fresh water you needed, and yet when it went yeah. through these processes and so forth it was it was uh how do you say very detrimental to the health of anybody that drank it through lead poisoning but i i uh, i guess you know we're t- we're i think you got to look things in the eye that's what you've done in your in your writings uh but i do remember michael mann saying to me and it was in the cl- conclusion of his book that 
you got to you got to find a way to have hope, even if you're not optimistic, because despair feeds the enemy, or which you might call defeats the possibility of the challenge. People become despairing and resign to a dreadful outcome that's not immediate, but it's on the horizon. And I would imagine there'll be a lot of dreadful outcomes of people displaced and food systems and other things disrupted that would will cause wreak a lot of havoc in between. But so if you were, how would I say, uh, talking to my children, ages nine and eleven, what what's the what's the best vision of the? We got to make this. We're going to make this, and here's how. Well, I, I mean, I just I don't think we have any option. You know, I mean, there's a lot of talk talk about in you know in climate circles this question of hope, you know, versus no hope, and I I kind of almost think we have to um, lay that aside and and just say, look, we we don't have any choice but to act uh, in the um, with the hope, I guess I'll bring hope back in, with the hope that what we're doing will make a difference. And that's, you know, is that hopeful or is that resigned? I, I, don't, I don't really know, but I think we need to put our own, you know, there's, you know, I don't think that people, you know, when people went off to fight World War II, um, you know, to use the military analogy, you know, were they hopeful? I, I don't really know. It's like, well, there's, there's, there's no choice. You know, this is what you do. It's the right thing to do. It's got to be done. Let's just do it. And I think that um, that's what we need to do. You know, we don't need, um, we don't need to spend that much time interrogating how we feel about it. We just need to, to do the work uh, to try to get the best outcome that we can. And the fact, you know, as you say, looking reality in the face is important. You know, the fact that the best outcome that we can get is not that great. You know, it's limiting the damage. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about a um, world that is returned to some, you know, pre-industrial or pre-lapsarian state. We're talking about a world where warming is limited to levels that, you know, are hopefully, once again, hopefully, because there's a lot of uncertainty in the science here as well, uh, and the dynamics of ice sheets, et cetera, um, hopefully that, that human society can cope with it. That's, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about whether advanced, industrialized societies that are dependent on a lot of stability, you know, our, our ancestors spent most of life, our, most of human history just moving. When things got, you know, the climate changed, it did change. Humans have been around, you know, through ice ages and through interglacials. And we got up and left. We, we, we moved. That's how we, we dealt with things. Um, and that's how the, you know, the, the indigenous peoples of, of Louisiana dealt with things when the Mississippi flooded. They, they left. And then the French came and they said, well, we're going to stay here. This is, this is a new way of doing things. And that way of doing things is, you know, in human, even in human history, relatively young since we invented agriculture, you know, 10,000 years ago or so. And um, 
you know, so we are changing the world really, really fast, uh, but we're not willing to move. You know, we don't want to move. Um, are we going to have to change the way, you know, we deal with everything? Are we going to have to, this gets back to what we were talking about in about New Orleans, are we going to have to, you know, come to grips with the fact that you can't continue to do things the way we're doing them and to live in the places that we now live, you know, low-lying coastal cities. Those just don't, unfortunately, go together. Something's gonna give. I can't tell you exactly what it's gonna be, uh, but I can tell you that something has to give. Yeah. You've uh, inspired me in listening to you right now to change the way I would approach this. It's not about hope, it's about resolve. That you have to have a resolve like you, you alluded to war preparation. One of my board members, Bill Janeway's father, was Elliot Janeway, and he wrote a book called The Struggle for Survival about FDR's war preparation. Naomi Klein's older brother, Seth, recently wrote a book called The Good War about Canadian preparation. Canada entered the World Second World War before the United States, and he draws the analogy to the organizing and the resolve that's necessary to prepare for climate change now, drawing on the lessons of how systems and governance functioned and operated at that time. So I think that, and, and the other thing that came to my mind as I was listening to you, hope can be delusional. It can be yeah. an anesthetic that right. damages resolve. So I, yeah. think, I think you've inspired me to change the way I describe things. Uh, that's good. That's really good. Uh, we have a new administration in the United States this year. There's much more talk now about addressing climate. I know you've been on the radio and things uh, in the last 30, 60 days, but as this unfolds, how are you seeing the new administration's response? Well, I, I definitely give the new administration a lot of credit for seeing, you know, I. They've Biden has put really smart people in place who absolutely see the big picture here, realize that this climate change needs to be confronted, you know, across many different sectors. It's not a, you know, silver bullet problem. It's a um, going to require massive retrenchment across the whole U.S. economy, and that's going to require you know, all federal agencies to sort of be on the same page and moving in the same direction. And they, they really, you know, get it now. Um, and, and Biden's executive orders and a, a lot of what's in the, the proposed infrastructure plan is, is, is really uh, positive. So there's a lot, a lot to be, uh, you know, to praise. And even if you are inclined to that sort of thing to be hopeful about, um, now, you know, all that being said, uh, I think that there's, you know, a lot of fear and dread um, that, you know, what is actually going to make it through a very, very, you know, completely evenly divided Senate. Uh, it's not, you can't, there's a limit to what Biden can do through regulatory, through executive action. And there's also another problem that's on the horizon, not to completely bring things back to problems, but that's the Supreme Court and, you know, taking uh, whatever Biden does that has a really significant impact on emissions will doubtless be litigated as was, you know, 
Obama's clean power plan. Um, and not to get too much into the nitty gritty here, but you have a very, uh, a Supreme Court that's very hostile uh, to a lot of these, you know, looking at the very fundamentals of our sort of modern regulatory system that could unfortunately be challenged. So um, there's a lot of, there are two tracks that things are, are, are moving on. One is very is very hopeful and and or, and positive in my view, and and another is unfortunately very scary. Yeah, I think uh, there's a book that I've recommended periodically as I've been making this podcast that was written in the 1980s by a famous philosopher, a student of Wittgenstein, named Stephen Toulmin. The book is called Cosmopolis. In the book, it really has a point, and. The point is, he studies from the Thirty Years' War, the development of the Cartesian Enlightenment, the application of it to social science, and the fault lines that were created. But the punchline is, when the flaws are identified, it is often very daunting and very frightening. And when people are afraid, they lurch back to the familiar rather than forward evolving in the way they have to. And and I think that Toulmin's insight and uh, his daughter Camilla works with with Inet on the relationship between Africa and climate change, among other things in Africa, but but she's written books on that. Uh, but but I do think this this resistance, you can have evil vested interests blocking things out, etc. But I also think there's just a, a fear of change, and the more fearful you are, the more, how do you say, maybe the more daring you should be, but, but the more resistant you might be. Yeah, and I, I think it's, an, it's a really important um, point that you're making, and that, you know, sort of gets us back to this idea that, yes, there absolutely are concerted, you know, efforts to prey really on on people's fears to preserve very powerful vested interests but the reason those are i would argue one of the reasons those are have been so successful is because they are very attuned to human psychology or at least american psychology which is yeah i don't i don't want i don't want to change i don't want to i don't want to move i don't want to i don't want my job threatened and i'm you know I, I, I'm, you have to, I, we're all in the same situation. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for many years. Journalism is in terrible, terrible trouble right now. You know, papers are folding. A, a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends are getting laid off. You don't have to be in the fossil fuel, you know, business, a coal miner uh, to be afraid of change. Uh, the whole of American society, the whole way that we work and live is being completely, you know, altered out from under our feet. And that's a very scary time, very scary situation. You know, even if you left aside climate change, if you just looked at the way the American economy is changing and the way it is creating, you know, some winners and a lot, a lot of losers, uh, you would say this is a very unstable time. And, you know, when we look at our politics, uh, we have to say, I think, you know, no matter what your own individual politics are, you know, both sides, as it were, uh, consider the other side to be extremely dangerous. Um, 
And that's a very unstable situation too. You know, a country that keeps lurching uh, from one, you know, way of doing things to another and can never put a policy into place. I mean, you know, this gets very much back to climate change um, and, legis and, and action on climate change. You know, at the end of the Obama administration, a, a, lot, a series of regulations were put in place that were actually, you know, very good regulations and would have made an important difference. And, you know, as soon as Trump came in, he ripped, literally ripped them all up and started putting in, you know, ridiculous regulations. And now Biden is, has come in and he will have to spend a lot of time, unfortunately, just undoing what Trump did, as stupid and waste of time as it was. It has to be legally undone. So, you know, we just keep lurching around like this and nothing gets done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you, what was the impetus? I, I, I have a group called the Young Scholars Initiative. It's about 15,000 young people who are looking to build their career. And I, I guess the question is, on behalf of them, what was it that turned you to this purpose, not of this latest book, but the whole theme and the whole focus? And what, what, are, what, what are you trying to impart with your energy on Earth? <laughs> well, I'm trying to, um, I'm really trying to impress on people at this point, how how extraordinary the situation that we're in is. We live in a, a you know, not not to sound like a broken record, but we really do live in an unprecedented time in Earth history. There's a tremendous responsibility that goes with that. I don't think we are living up to that responsibility by any you know stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think I'm I'm trying to do. You know what it would what journalists do except that the stakes are very 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 high uh trying to impart to people get them to sort of you know tilt their worldview a little bit um or a lot and realize that what we take as extremely ordinary what you know it's really ordinary we live in you know houses that we heat and cool with fossil fuels we drive around we stick you know ancient plants in our gas tanks and drive around. It seems to us really ordinary. It's actually unprecedented in Earth's history uh, to, do some, to do these things. And um, it's having consequences that are uh, potentially, um, you know, civilization threatening. Mm -hmm. So was there a, an episode that turned your head and ignited this? Did it grow over slowly or was there some... Uh... Some well, acute I, experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have an epiphany, you know, moment where the light bulb went off. I, I grew up in the suburbs of New York, and I grew up. Um, my parents used to take us out west, you know, in the summer, and I really loved the American West and fell in love with, uh, you know, some idea. I realized it was just an idea of, 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 of wildness and. Um, I guess that ha has played in the back of my mind, you know, always uh, that other other creatures besides humans have a have a right to exist, and I think that that um, really that is a pretty fundamental point that gets um, overlooked 
again and again and again with, with whatever we do, we are always impinging on other species' ability to survive at this point. And it's becoming, I, I can't stress it enough, it's becoming um, catastrophic. I mean, the, the uh, studies of, of insect decline, um, you know, insects are, you would think are pretty extinction resistant. They have a lot of offspring. They uh, have short generation time, but we're seeing insect populations crashing. I mean, this is, this is really tampering with the absolute fabric uh, of life on earth. I don't think there's any doubt about that at, at this point. You mentioned going out west uh, when you were young. I grew up in Michigan, and almost all the creeks and islands and even one of the towns was named after Native American Indian chiefs or famous episodes. Are there, I, I often, in talking about climate on this podcast and in organizing, I often hear people talking about uh, Native American philosophy as being which you might call what the doctor ordered for our wake-up call. Are there, are there particular works in that realm? I've heard people describe about the evil of humans. A man named Jack Forbes wrote a book called Columbus and Cannibals, Black Elk Speaks. Uh, but are, are there works in the Native American lore that have influenced your way of seeing? You know, I'm sure on a, on a profound level that that is is true you know i and i do remember as a, as a kid i mean once again going to visit native american towns you know out west and seeing some amazing you know rituals and uh that i feel very fortunate to have seen at that time um but i think that what we have to be i do think what we have to be you know, honest about in 2021, and I think, you know, Native societies, Indigenous societies in the U.S. and obviously all around the world live for, you know, many, many thousands of years um, without, you know, creating the kind of, you know, crises that we are creating. But, you know, it's not possible at this point. It's simply not possible. And this is another thematic of, you know, Under a White Sky, it's not possible to say on a world with 8 billion people, uh, almost 8 billion people, well, we're going to go back to, you know, an in living the way that um, Native American tribes did in North America uh, prior to colonial settlement in a way that was, you know, pretty stable for many thousands of years. That's you know, simply we need to feed 8 billion people. That is not happening uh, without, you know, synthetic fertilizer, et cetera. We can go on and on without, you know, mechanized agriculture, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, well, I think that there are, I think that, you know, to be honest, I think we, we need new ways of thinking. We are not solving this. Um, there's a, a great deal to be learned from, you know, or to be thought about, I think, thinking about how people did live, you know, much simpler, you know, less consumptive lives. Um, but I don't think that we can look to the past. That is precisely the problem that we have. We have created a situation where the past is not a good guide. It's no longer a good guide to us. It can't uh, get us out of this situation because there are simply, we, are, we have too many demands uh, 
as a human population of 8 billion people, if you were willing to return to, you know, the global population of a billion or 500 million, uh, we could talk. But I don't think anyone really wants that to happen. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, how do I say, was very inspired by reading your work. It reminded me of an experience in my own life uh, when 9-11 happened. Uh, my older children, who are now in their 30s, had many parents of their classmates were killed. And uh, I was coming down the West Side Highway when I saw the planes hit the building. And in the, within a week, someone gave me a novel that they said they thought would help. And it was by a man named Rohinton Mystery from India. And the name of the novel was A Fine Balance. And I read this and it was very, very powerful and I won't say soothing, but helping me direct forward. And I learned later that the title came from a notion which I experienced in listening to you. A fine balance is taken from the phrase, life is a fine balance between hope and despair. And I see you on the hopeful side and I often celebrate, music always invades my spirit. So there's a lyric I wanna share with you. Okay. Teddy Pendergrass, singing with Harold Melvin of Blue Roots, has a song called, Wake Up Everybody. And the first two verses go, wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed, no more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. So there is so much hatred, war and poverty. Wake up all the teachers, time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say, because they're the ones who are coming up and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children, teach them the very best you can. I think you're one of the best teachers oh, that I've come across. <laughs> that's very and that's why I recite that song in your honor, because we can all use the wake-up call. Yeah, and we maybe can all that's, use maybe, the illumination. That's really that what I should bringing. have said. When you said, what are you trying to do? I should have said, I'm trying to get people to wake up, because we, we are really sleepwalking uh, into disaster here. Well, I guess... On the wake up mission, I, I'm your deputy amplifier. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and trying to reach more and more people with the awareness that you impart. So, th thanks for being with me today. Maybe we'll watch a little bit in, in a couple, you know, a handful of weeks or months, come back and do another episode. But I, uh, I'm very grateful oh, that well, you thank joined you. me in this episode. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing